Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Zane Asher. Coming up on the program, U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi kicking off her closely watched trip to Asia with a visit to Singapore. Sources tell CNN that Pelosi is expected to visit Taiwan despite warnings from China. We'll have the very latest on that. Plus, an important milestone in the ongoing war in Ukraine, a ship carrying Ukrainian grain departing the Black Sea port of Odessa under a UN-brokered export deal. All that and more, but first... A global check of the markets is looking like a cautious start to the trading week on Wall Street. U.S. futures under intense pressure right now after major averages wrapped up their most profitable month since late 2020. A positive tone to the U.S. earnings season has boosted sentiment, as well as hopes that the U.S. Federal Reserve will soon begin to slow the pace of rate hikes. The Nasdaq was the best performing U.S. index in July, up more than 12 percent. The S&P 500 rising more than 9%. Green arrows in Europe today with banking giant uh, HSBC posting a more than 60% jump in second quarter earnings. A positive tone in Asia too, despite fresh concerns over the Chinese economy. And a private survey showing manufacturing activity barely uh, in expansion mode last month. All this amid deepening concerns about the scale of China's property market downturn. Let's get right now to our top story. Ukraine's grain finally released. The first ship to set sail under a UN broken export deal is now carrying 26,000 tons of Ukrainian corn to Lebanon via Turkey. It's expected uh, in Istanbul Tuesday afternoon. Let's bring in Claire Sebastian uh, with the very latest. So, Claire, this coming months after intense negotiations, as I mentioned, 26,000 tons of corn. Obviously, more is needed given the global food crisis, but certainly a step in the right direction, at least for now. Yeah, Zane, a fraction of the 22 million tons that remains blocked in Ukraine, thanks to this months-long uh, blockade by Russia of the Ukrainian Black Sea ports. But this is look, a delicate but still a hopeful moment as we see this ship. It's a Sierra Leone-flagged vessel called the Rizzoni, which is now in the Black Sea, being escorted by Ukraine uh, through this safe maritime corridor. It will then arrive in Istanbul, as you say, sometime uh, Tuesday afternoon, local time, where it will be inspected by the Joint Coordination Center. This was part of the Black Sea Grain Initiative that was brokered as part of these uh, talks between the UN, Turkey, Russia and Ukraine to get this grain moving. It will be inspected uh, and then we'll be able to move through the Bosphorus and on to its final destination, which is Tripoli uh, in Libya. Now, this is obviously an extremely welcome move, not just for, for, for Lebanon, sorry, Tripoli in Lebanon. Uh, Lebanon, uh, pre- previously before the war, bought about 66% uh, of its wheat from Ukraine. This is a country facing uh, inflation over 200%, but also the rest of the world, in particular, the Middle East and Africa, the World Food Programme, has warned that if this war drags on without any progress on the grain exports, that 47 million more people could be tipped into acute hunger. So a very important moment uh, for the world, frankly. And we see the UN Secretary General saying uh, that 
this could bring much-needed stability and relief to global food security. And Zane, even the Kremlin today calling this positive, although noting that this is a good opportunity to test the effectiveness of the mechanisms that were agreed in those talks in Istanbul. Definitely a major test of what's to come here. Yeah, I mean, you talk about Africa and we know that, you know, Somalia right now is on the brink of a catastrophic uh, famine, as you well know, Claire Sebastian. Um, do we know anything more about the dates and the timings of potential other shipments? We don't know as of yet, uh, Zane. We know that there, are, that there are others waiting in these ports. There are three ports that are sort of designated under this agreement to be used uh, for exports where there are safe maritime corridors, but we don't have any dates uh, yet as to when they will depart. This uh, is extremely complicated. Ukraine's job in this deal is to escort the ships uh, through these safe maritime corridors. We know that as part of the agreement, they haven't actually demined the area. This is because all sides really agreed that it would take too long. So they're they're navigating a sort of a literal and a geopolitical, you could say, minefield uh, as they go through the Black Sea. And then, of course, all these checks by the Joint Coordination Center. So an extremely delicate uh, operation. And this is, I say, uh, a major test case uh, for what's to come next. But we do hope, and certainly all sides hope, uh, that more ships will start you know, coming through in the next few days, because not only are we talking about the 22 million tons uh, that are trapped in grain silos in Ukraine, but obviously harvest season is underway right now. So there is more that's going to go into those storage facilities. Uh, and, and what's there needs to get out. It can't remain in storage uh, for very long, Zane. Right, Claire Sebastian, live for us there. Thank you so much. And later this hour, we're going to be live in Odessa in Ukraine to talk to the emergency coordinator for the World uh, Food Programme. So do stay tuned for that. In Ukraine, heavy shelling has been reported in the southern city of Mykolaiv on Sunday. The mayor tells CNN it was one of the worst attacks he's seen since Russia began its invasion. Here's our Nick Robertson with more. With dawn, an end to Mikolaev's heaviest night of shelling so far, but not to the fear it brings. In the immediate aftermath, fires to be put out. The only fatalities at this residential mansion. Multi-millionaire businessman Alexei Vadaturksky and his wife Raisa were sheltering in the basement when their home took a direct hit. Neighbours still in shock. We don't know what to do. We hate Russia, actually. It's, it's unbelievable that it can, in one moment, just destroy everything. Maxim has lived here almost 20 years, but maybe no more. I just don't want to stay here right now. This crater here gives you an idea of just how big the blast was. Debris strewn down here and the windows of the building blown out. Other buildings around here also hit. Those with military links off limits to our cameras. The mayor concerned Russian sympathizers at work. I'm sure that they have uh, spies who are going around the city and they uh, say like I saw the number of machines or the people, military people, they send this information and Russian attacks there. And do you think those saboteurs might have helped in the attacks last night? I'm sure they helped. Within hours, life returning to what passes as normal. Pensioners and others in line for drinking water. The city's clean water supply destroyed months ago. They hit us, and they hit us hard. From 1am until morning, Valentina tells us, 
We are scared. We want to leave. But that's how life is for us now. Where the mansion was hit and residents are richer, another neighborhood of the dead businessman tells me he can't take it anymore, that he'll leave. Not clear if high-profile businessman Alexei Varaturksky was an intended target. President Zelensky held him a hero. His death and the up-tempo strikes here chilling this city's otherwise resilient mood. Nick Robertson, CNN, Mikolaev, Ukraine. Thousands of people came out to protest in Sudan Sunday after an exclusive CNN investigation exposed a Russian operation to plunder the country's gold. The demonstrators called for an end to Sudan's military regime, which has allowed Russia to steal Sudan's gold to fuel its war in Ukraine. Nemeral Baga joins us live now. So, Nemer, as you well know, the people of Sudan already had bones to pick with Sudan's uh, military government, um, especially after it ousted, essentially, the civilian government in 2021. Obviously, this has further inflamed tensions. But just walk us through um, what the reaction to these protests have been from Sudan's military. Well, there has been what Sudan's Emergency Lawyers Group, a pro bono organization which organizes uh, legal defense funds for pro-democracy activists targeted by the regime, uh, a spike, an excess in the repression is how they termed it. They said protesters were met with uh, diluted chemical solutions. They were, they were met with extremely noxious tear gas. Uh, they were beaten. They were followed back to their neighborhoods even after protesters stopped occupying the center of downtown Khartoum in their push towards Sudan's seat of power, the Republican palace. There is a sense that uh, outrage has once again been renewed by, by people getting a fuller understanding of the sins of Sudan's military rulers, of this sense of real disgust that not only were Sudan's generals holding on to power, but as, as, as one activist put it to us, that while we were bleeding out, that they were making money off handing over Sudan to a, a foreign power. So you are absolutely right. These, these scenes that we're showing our audience are not new in Sudan, but it's really this renewed sense of outrage at Sudan's military, at what it's costing the country's aim that we're hearing from people on the ground. I mean, here's the thing, because, you know, in addition to the outrage, there is the fact that Sudan, as you know, is going through a deep economic crisis right now. Mm. The fact that Russia has been siphoning off um, Sudan's gold, how much has that deprived the country, if you will, of much needed revenue at this particular time? That really is the key point that everybody is talking about, that at a time when a third of Sudan, according to the World Food Programme, is going hungry, when inflation is at just under 200 percent, it's higher than in Venezuela or in Zimbabwe, that so much money could be siphoned off. That, in fact, when you see, as, as we showed the audience in our piece, the conditions, the danger that miners are facing, the day that we were down in those artisanal mines, Zane, they they were telling us that regularly mine shafts collapse, right? Because they're using these very primitive mining means. Mine shafts collapse and often they are unable to save miners. For people to go to that extent to try and feed themselves and their families and to hear that 
billions of dollars are being misappropriated. I think that really felt incredibly painful for people to hear. We've been hearing from a lot of the civilian officials, the anti-corruption officials, and they say that this really was the heart of the fight with their um, their partners as they were in government and the coalition government at the time with the military, that the military were not allowing the civilians to even fully understand how much money was going amiss, how much money could be saving Sudan. Uh, I mean, we're, we're waiting to see what happens on the ground. But so far, the response that we're hearing, the way that former civilian anti-corruption officials and others who are suspected of having been sources for our investigation are being targeted, there is a real sense, as one uh, person put it to us, that the, the authorities are scared, Zen, and that mm-hmm. there are going to be consequences for people on the ground because of that. Well, Nema, thank you so much for shining a light on this story and uh, phenomenal reporting by you and your team, thank you. as usual. Nema Bagir. Uh, Thank you so much. All right. German airline Lufthansa says negotiations with its pilots are ongoing after the union that represents them threatened to strike. More than 1,000 flights were cancelled last week as ground staff walked out, disrupting what has already been a busy and a very uh, challenging summer for travellers. Anna Stewart joins us live now. So, uh, Anna, I think we can all agree that this is the last thing that airlines need right now, especially this airline. Lufthansa, as we know, has already cancelled about 7,000 flights this summer alone because of staffing shortages. Um, And, you know, perhaps now we'll see even more uh, shortages or strikes rather because of the strike, uh, even more cancellations rather because of these strikes. Just walk us through that. Yeah, so this latest vote was from the Lufthansa Pilots Union VC, and they voted overwhelmingly, nearly 98% for industrial action. Now, at this stage, it doesn't necessarily mean a strike, but it does mean there is so much more pressure now on this airline uh, to reach some sort of pay agreement, because like all the strikes we've seen recently... This is regarding pay. This union would like to see pilots from Lufthansa be paid 5.5% more this year and thereafter to see it go up in terms of inflation. Now, I think it's important to remember that the pandemic happened pretty recently. And in 2020, these pilots reached an agreement with the Lufthansa Group to accept a massive pay cut. They had a 45% reduction in their pay as a result of the pandemic, the fact that no one could work and the fact that this airline was going to struggle to stay afloat. However, that agreement on a reduction came to an end in June. And now these pilots, having had two years of severely limited pay, want to see more. And also, of course, like the rest of us, they are feeling the effects of inflation. They also, this union, want to see uniform pay, not just uh, for the Lufthansa airline, but across the whole group. So they want to be paid the same as Eurowings and Austrian and Brussels Airlines, the other airlines within that group. Now, Lufthansa have said uh, that they respect the result of this vote. They say they'll continue to hold constructive talks to find a joint solution. And they have added that the next meeting dates have been agreed, as you can see there. So we will hear more on this. Interestingly, completely separately, pilots at the uh, Lufthansa Group's other airline, Swiss, have rejected a proposal on pay as well. So potentially, if things aren't worked out, we could see pilots striking both from the Lufthansa airline, but also the Swiss airline as well in the weeks ahead. Now, the Lufthansa airline is already, as you say, suffering from major strike action last week. You and I were talking about it. 1,000 flights were cancelled. It impacted 130,000 passengers thereabout. We spoke to some of those passengers stranded at various airports around the world, many using uh, Lufthansa and Frankfurt Airport particularly 
has a big sort of long haul connection. That's what it's really well known for. And people were telling me they were being stranded there for days, possibly even more than a week, because it's so hard to get another flight right now. And this is all feeding into the same issue, a lack of staff, which means a lack of capacity and overstretched staff, which means they go on strike, thereby reducing capacity even more. So this summer of discontent just continues. Zane? Yeah, a hard time for airlines overall as they really try to accommodate more passengers who are, you know, and the increasing sort of bookings that we're seeing in this post-pandemic climate. Anna Stewart, live for us there. Thanks so much. All right, these are the stories making headlines uh, around the world. More than 2 million people across parts of the northwestern uh, U.S. are under high fire danger alerts. That includes where the massive McKinney fire in Northern California has burned more than 21,000 hectares of land. Thunderstorms producing lightning and gusty winds have been forecast, and that could make matters even worse. Meantime, in the state of Kentucky, the death toll from recent heavy rains and flooding now stands at 30. The government says he believes that that number will rise. The U.S. President Joe Biden is still testing positive for COVID after announcing he had a rebound infection on Saturday. The White House says that he's feeling well and will continue to do his job in isolation. Mr. Biden came into close contact with six people before Saturday, but officials say that they have all tested negative. Right, this incredible scene happened Sunday in Beirut, Lebanon. Two massive grain silos collapsed, leading the way for others to follow. According to Lebanese media reports, the silos were damaged in the massive 2020 port blast, and officials say that soaring temperatures ignited fermenting grains. There have been no reports of injuries. All right, straight ahead here, Vessel of Hope. I speak to the World Food Programme's representative in Odessa as the first grain shipment leaves Ukraine. And space travel, powered by hot air. The CEO of the Florida firm creating the world's first carbon-neutral spaceship. That's next. All right, welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks on track for early session losses this Monday as investors get set to kick off a brand new month of trading. The major averages coming off of two weeks of solid gains despite fresh signs that the U.S. economy is weakening and perhaps headed for a recession. Numbers out last week showed the economic economy contracting for a second straight quarter as consumers and businesses pull back on spending amid rising inflation. New challenges await investors in the coming days. Closely watched earnings are on tap from firms like Uber, for example, Starbucks and eBay as well. The U.S. releases its latest look at the health of the U.S. jobs market on Friday. The pace of jobs growth is expected to slow as more companies begin rethinking hiring plans. A less robust U.S. labor market would be a welcome development at the Fed. The U.S. central bank is raising rates in the hopes of slowing down the economy as its preferred measure of inflation remains near 40-year highs. Neil Kashkari, the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, warning over the weekend that inflation continues to surprise to the upside, something he fears more than the current risk of a recession. Christina Huber joins us live now. She's the chief global market strategist as Invesco. Um, Christina, thank you so much for being with us. So let's just talk about what stocks were doing in July, because stocks in July, S&P 500 particularly, had the best month it's seen since November 2020. Why is there this disconnect between what the stock market is doing and the fears about a potential recession that the U.S. may be in? 
Well, I think for two reasons. First of all, typically stocks move in advance of where the economy is going. They tend to, quote unquote, discount what's going to happen. And there tends to be about a six to nine month lag. So one could argue that stocks are already anticipating an economic rebound. And that's why they have um, had such a, a strong uh, performance in July. The other argument is simpler, um, that, that many are assuming that the Fed is going to pivot to a less hawkish stance. Now, we may recall that this is has been a Fed-dominated market environment. At the start of the year, when the Fed made that very hawkish pivot, um, that really sent stocks down. So the potential for the Fed to pivot to a less aggressive stance uh, has has really fueled a lot of, of this run-up. I would argue that it's probably a little of both, but more the latter than the former. And just to sort of double down on what you were saying there about the Fed, I mean, what is your anticipation for September? Do you personally anticipate, you know, a 75 basis point hike? Or do you think that, you know, um, that some investors are right, that the Fed will actually slow down its pace of tightening because of fears about the economy? Well, you're not going to like my answer, but it's it depends, right? Okay. Because the Fed... The Fed has made it very clear that it is going to be extremely data dependent. We saw that in June. Uh, essentially, the FOMC reacted to data points that came out within a few days before the meeting. And that's why we got that 75 basis point hike in June. That can work in the other direction. So if we do see some easing of inflationary pressures, as well as the Fed noting that the economy is is uh, softening quickly, that could be enough. Um, and, and certainly there are already some indicators that suggest the Fed could get less aggressive in longer term inflation expectations now have a two handle. Um, that's pretty impressive given where we are. And it's certainly moving in the right direction. So so I think we have to wait and see what happens with the data that comes between now and the meeting. Um, but if the data suggests that uh, inflation is getting under control, it's easing uh, somewhat, then I think we could see a pivot. And and it could even be signaled in a Jackson Hole speech. Now, that might be a best case scenario, but I do think that at some point in the fall, we're going to see uh, a Fed pivot to a less hawkish stance. OK, so let's sort of wait and see what the next seven weeks of data uh, bring us. Let's talk about what certain Fed officials are saying, like Neil Kishkari, for example. He basically said over the weekend that, you know, his focus isn't really on whether or not the U.S is in recession. His focus is primarily on bringing down uh, inflation. Do you think that that is the name of the game right now, that it's all about bringing down inflation, that that is the priority, regardless if whether or not the Fed tactics to do that through monetary policy ends up bringing the U.S. into a recession? That's a qualified yes. Um, certainly, that is the primary goal for the Fed right now. It needs to restore complete credibility. And that's what it's doing. I mean, a lot of inflation is about managing inflation expectations. And it has been able, as I said, to bring down longer term inflation expectations. So it needs to keep talking tough. And I think that Fed officials have been uh, a little surprised at just how, um, how significant the rally was, just how positive the reaction was last week. They don't want to see that just yet um, because they, they really do want to 
continue seeing a tightening of financial conditions. They want to get inflation in control. But at the end of the day, um, they have a dual mandate. And so um, if the economy uh, is softening too quickly, um, if they start getting really alarmed and they feel as though inflation is somewhat in check, um, is is easing somewhat, I, I think they could pivot um to an even slightly less aggressive stance. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's very hard with a dual mandate, but they do have to talk tough right now, and that's what they're doing. It's not just going to be Neil Kashkari. We're going to hear from a lot of Fed officials that talk tough. I mean, yeah, it's interesting because for a lot of sort of American consumers, wages are going up, but they're not necessarily going up at the pace of uh, inflation. Just quickly, Christina, what do you make of the strength of the U.S. consumer right now? Well, um, we're getting certainly different reads on the strength of the U.S. consumer. Um, What I would say is it's a mixed bag, but certainly it's weakening. Um, uh, The the key, though, is that there is more savings based on the pandemic. There had been a lot of stimulus. uh, So hopefully the U.S. consumer can ride it out. But lower income Americans really are getting hit hard. And we're already starting to see that. Yeah, that is uh, always the case. Uh Christina Hooper, live for us there. Thank you so much. The Chief Global Market Strategist at uh, Invesco. All right, we'll have the opening bell after the break. You're watching First Move. Don't go away. It's the first of the month, and there we have Silgan Holdings ringing the opening bell. Uh, on Wall Street, it's just gone 9.30 in the morning where I am. U.S. stocks, as you can see, there are up and running on this first trading day uh, of August. As expected, we are beginning the month with slight losses. Stocks falling for the first time in four sessions ahead of another busy week of earnings and economic data. New U.S. manufacturing numbers will be released at the top of the hour and the U.S. jobs report will be released on Friday. Boeing helping limit the downside for the Dow. The company reportedly getting the green light from the U.S. to resume deliveries of the 787 Dreamliner after a delay of more than one year. Shares are up about 4% uh, in early trading. Alibaba's U.S. listed shares, little change in early trading. The Chinese retailing giant says it will comply with U.S. accounting rules after a delisting threat from the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. The SEC placed the company on a delisting watch list last week because it had been unable to inspect the firm's financial statements. Alibaba says it is committed to both its U.S. and Hong Kong stock listings. All right, I want to turn now to Asia, where U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is visiting with a congressional delegation. CNN has learned that she is, she is, in fact, planning to visit Taiwan this week, despite strong warnings from China. Uh, CNN's Will Ripley joins us live now from Taipei. So, Will, this could potentially be the highest sort of American official to visit um, Taiwan in about 25 years or so. China has warned that those who play with fire will get burned. What sort of confrontation do you think that China is willing to risk here? Yeah, the last time... uh you know, a, a speaker of the House tra- tra- visited Taiwan was Newt Gingrich, as you mentioned, a quarter century ago. And back then, China's uh, military and GDP was a fraction, a small fraction of what it is now. Uh, you have a Chinese president who has stated repeatedly that retaking Taiwan, reabsorbing Taiwan, it's not a matter of if, but when. And he now commands a massive military 
a huge nuclear arsenal, which also includes these new hypersonic weapons, uh, you know, and also an evolving uh, space fleet, uh, you know, that could potentially be used as well. You, you have you have all of this hardware being built up and you have one man in charge in China. Uh, you know, obviously he has advisors, but at the end he calls the shots. He's the one that said zero covid. They're the only ones still holding on to zero covid. And look at how that's impacting their own people's lives. So what would they do for the 22 million people, 25 million people or so here on the island of Taiwan if they feel that Nancy Pelosi, uh, you know, that her visit is somehow so insulting to President Xi that they have to take drastic action? Now, I will say this, name. What I'm seeing in terms of their propaganda, you know, some of this rhetoric, uh, you know, the, the play with fire going to get burned. Army will never sit idly by. China will take resolute response. It's all kind of boilerplate propaganda that we've heard before. Uh, it's not something that seems, at least at the moment, like anything more than a rhetorical escalation, propaganda videos to appear you know, strong, but yet not to push the situation to regional instability at a time that President Xi needs everything to be stable, you know, months you know, before his party Congress and potentially unprecedented third presidential term. He could essentially become president for life. So he doesn't want a conflict. President Biden has stated publicly he doesn't want a conflict. So I think the biggest risk here is just if something goes wrong, if there's some sort of a miscalculation. And that is certainly what I think both sides hopefully are communicating, but at least trying very hard to make sure that they avoid that. Taiwan's first line of defense from a Chinese invasion, Taipei Port, a crucial river gateway to the capital. If China takes the port, the presidential office could be next. For decades, Taiwanese troops have been training to defend this island from the mainland's massive military, the world's only Chinese-speaking democracy, preparing for a David and Goliath scenario, made more credible by Russia's war on Ukraine. The latest fiery threats from Beijing, whose communist rulers regard Taiwan as a breakaway province, reaching fever pitch all over leaked plans of a potential visit to this self-governing island by U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, the highest-ranking U.S. official to visit Taiwan in 25 years. Pelosi is leading a congressional delegation to the Indo-Pacific region, including Singapore, Malaysia, South Korea, and Japan. No official mention of Taiwan. Analysts say Pelosi could still visit Taiwan, a whirlwind stop lasting hours, not days, an attempt to rein in the rhetoric and tame China's threats to not play with fire by supporting Taiwan independence. Senator Tammy Duckworth's delegation dropped by Taiwan for just a few hours in May. China still flew dozens of warplanes near Taiwan. Taipei leaders called Beijing a bully. And the news cycle moved on. I don't think they will retaliate. I don't worry about it. Mainland China is just threatening us. If they really decide to invade Taiwan, they can kill it within two to three days. They don't need to talk much. It's a view shared by many in Taiwan. They've been riding this rhetorical roller coaster for decades. As the latest U.S.-China threats dominated global headlines, they were barely mentioned by the media in Taiwan. The island with the most to lose has lost interest. I wasn't interested in finding out more about it. I'm not concerned. China has done the same thing many times, but exchanges between Taiwan and the U.S. shouldn't be stopped because of this. Many Taiwanese people perceive war with China as a distant threat, a threat, some observers say, could draw closer with each escalation. Xi Jinping is China's most powerful leader since Mao. His vow to bring Taiwan back to the mainland by force if necessary is backed by a massive military 
and growing nuclear arsenal. Now, this stop in Taiwan, this overnight stop, is still not on Speaker Pelosi's public itinerary. Uh, we're being told she might be arriving about 24 hours or so from now, which means uh, evening here in Taiwan, morning there in the U.S. And at that point, we just need to watch and see what happens in terms of China's movements on the Taiwan Strait. Will Ripley, live for us there. Thank you so much. All right. Re-upping our top story this hour, the first grain ship to leave Ukraine under a U.N. brokered deal with Russia set sail from the port of Odessa this morning. It's expected to reach Istanbul on Tuesday before continuing to its final des- destination of Tripoli uh, in Lebanon. Resuming exports could be a crucial first step in easing the global food crisis sparked by the war. Millions of tons of grain have been trapped inside Ukraine for months. Joining us live now is Matthew Hollingsworth, the World Food Program's Emergency Coordinator uh, for Ukraine. Matthew, thank you so much for being with us. The World Food Program has talked about this idea that every single time uh, food prices increase by 1%, that means that 10 million more people are sort of pushed into poverty. Um, Just walk us through the significance of this particular shipment in terms of easing the plight of millions of people around the world who are either hungry, starving, or at risk of being so. Thank you, Zane. Clearly, this first vessel today, the um, MV Rizzoni leaving, um, is a really incredibly welcome first step uh, in a much bigger and longer process. Um, it is going to you know, bring much needed, uh, in this case, uh, corn, maize to Lebanon. But it's the first such vessel that we see that, that needs to be uh, increased uh, tenfold, twentyfold, thirtyfold, because if we're going to bring stability and relief to global food insecure countries or, or many food insecure countries around the globe today, um, this, this is just quite a first step. Um, and why is it important? It's important because there are 345 million people today uh, in 82 countries who are um, acutely food insecure. Uh, some of those people, a million of them, are living in famine-like conditions. Um, we have to see both the commercial and the aid increases of foodstuffs from this country um, if we're going to mitigate and have any impact on easing uh, the global market and the global need for food from this country. You're on the ground there in, in Odessa. Um, we know that about 16 ships, 16 other ships are docked in the Black Sea with about 600,000 um, tons of grain. Just just walk us through what you're hearing on the ground in terms of dates and possible timings of these ships also being allowed to pass as well. Well, clearly the first one is the big test. And this is why today was so exciting. Um, I was sitting uh, listening to the to the MV Rosoni um, blow its foghorn four times before it was tugged out of the, uh, the port. And we watched it go into the channel on, on its way to the Bosphorus. Um, you know, but there are those other vessels that need to go out. And then, of course, very importantly, we also need to start seeing new vessels come in uh, and trust and confidence that grow in the market so that commercial um, shipping providers can start sending their vessels in. Um, so this is the, just the first of, of, of many that are required. And again, that's important because this country is expecting 45 to 50 million tons or more in this season's harvest. And they're still holding on to 20 million tons from last season's harvest. And they don't have the space to keep holding on to that food. 
So it needs to get out if we're going to secure benefits, double benefits, A, for the farming agricultural industry of this country, the economy of this country, Ukraine, which is suffering tremendously because of the war, but also B, if we're going to at all be able to uh, um, alleviate the plight of people living in famine conditions in desperate conditions around the world. You've got a lot of African countries that are heavily dependent on Russia and Ukraine. Russia and Ukraine uh, pretty much control about a third of the global sort of wheat exports. Um, we know that Somalia, for example, in East Africa right now is on the brink of a catastrophic famine if nothing is done right now. I mean, what happens to these countries in the meantime? Yes, we've got one ship that is left. You talked about 16 others that are waiting to leave right now. This first shipment is a test. What happens to countries like Somalia while we're all waiting? There are other countries that are producing grain and that grain is on the market. But clearly when you lose more than 10, 15, 20% of the world's port members because of this war, um, it's had a drastic impact on on prices globally, and that means that those you know people in those countries are eating less, and they're they're not able to afford the food that is available, um, and potentially if the fertilizer is uh, made available for both local production and, and international production elsewhere in the world, we're facing potential availability crises in the year to come. So it's very important as well just to, to recall. The, 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 the uh, agreement brokered by Turkey with uh, Ukraine and Russia, with the United Nations sponsorship, is a twofold agreement. It does enable um, wheat, uh, other cereals to be moved out of Ukraine, but it also enables fertilizer and food to be moved from Russia as well through the, the Black Sea. And that's really important because both these countries need to get their food and fertilizer to the world if we are going to have an impact on what is already a massive um, food inflation crisis in so many uh, countries in the world. All right, uh, Matthew Hollingsworth, uh, thank you so much for the work that you do. Matthew Hollingsworth, the World Food Programme's emergency coordinator for Ukraine. Matthew, thank you. All right, more first move uh, after the break. Don't go away. The future of space tourism may not only be aboard a high-speed rocket, a luxury hot air balloon might be more your thing. Space, space Perspective, a company based in Florida, is building what it calls the world's only carbon-neutral spaceship called Spaceship Neptune, designed to take passengers to the edge of space in a pressurized capsule. The Neptune capsule has what the company describes as the largest windows ever flown to space and will also have Wi-Fi, <laughs> a bathroom, and a fully stopped bar on board. Space Perspective trips to the edge of space should start by the end of 2024. A return ticket will cost you a whopping uh, $125,000 a bargain compared to the cost of a space flight with, for example, Virgin Galactic. The company says 900 tickets have actually already been sold. Taylor McCallum, co-founder and co-CEO of Space Perspective, joins us now. Taylor, thank you so much for being with us. So let's talk about this idea of, of the first, the world's first carbon neutral space flight. So there are no rockets and it's propelled by renewable hydrogen. Just walk us through that. 
So we use hydrogen to inflate the balloon. And so that buoyancy of the balloon takes us up to the edge of space without emitting any carbon at all. Of course, there are some you know, emissions from the company's operations and we use cool effects, a certified offset to, uh, to take care of those. So the, the, the space flight itself and our operations are carbon neutral. It's interesting because generally one spaceship or space sort of trip um, emits an entire lifetime's worth of carbon dioxide. And yet there doesn't really seem to be much discussion and much consideration about the environmental impact of space travel. Why was this such an important aspect of your mission? Well, so much of what we're doing is to give people the space perspective, the the view of our Earth from space. And I think, you know, in large measure, what that does is gives people a context of how, you know, we're all in this together. We're one pretty small planet in a really big universe. And, you know, the environment is something that comes to mind you know, immediately when people see this very, very thin atmosphere that we have. And when you talk with astronauts, they, they come back to these environmental issues over and over again. So it seemed really important to us uh, both in you know, the vision we had for the company and the message we give to the world that being carbon neutral was a fundamental part of how we have space tourism moved into the future. And how important do you think, you know, this idea of being, that the service you offer is carbon neutral, how important do you think that is or that will be for demand? I think it's an important aspect as people choose how they want to go to space and we hear this a lot. People say, well, you know, I could go on a rocket, but, you know, they look at all the pollution that comes out during the rocket ride and say, you know, I really prefer to go a way that is accessible both in uh, the experience of slowly and gently going up to the edge of space, as well as uh, the emissions surrounding that actual flight. Um, so one of these trips can basically transport about eight passengers at a time. I'm just looking at my notes here. Six-hour flight. So it takes two hours to get there. You stay for about two hours. You look around and then two hours presumably to get back. Just walk us through some of the perks that are on board. I mean, we talked about the Wi-Fi, for example, a fully stocked bar, 360-degree uh, panoramic views. Just, just walk us through some of the perks. So I, I think one of the big perks is actually the room that we provide for people to have interactions with each other and the ground. We did something like 130 mock-ups and designs of the interior of the capsule. And one of the big things that came out of that was that people just sort of sitting in front of a window really, really didn't work. People wanted to interact with each other. So when you look at the arrangement of the seats inside our space lounge, we call it, it allows people to interact with each other and share the experience. And it, it turned out, that sharing the experience with each other on the flight and with people on the ground was really one of the most important aspects. And then another aspect was having an interior that seemed inviting and safe and that, that made people comfortable and calm. And, and we get that feedback on the interior a lot, that this is really inviting and accessible. Oh, it certainly is, judging by those pictures. All right. Uh, Tabor McCallum, Life for Us, thank you so much. Uh, co-founder and co-CEO of Space uh, perspective. All right, still to come, England's women's team wins the Euro 2022 and a huge victory for women's football. We are live from the celebrations next.
Oh my gosh, just incredible. Oh my gosh, you see the, uh, you feel the euphoria there in England after the national women's team beat Germany to win the Euro final on Sunday. A victory parade to celebrate the Lionesses' achievement is in full swing in central London. Alex Thomas has more. We've seen many other sporting celebrations here at this iconic London landmark before, but none quite like this. England players taking to the stage with huge cheers from the thousands present, some wearing shades, maybe not just because of the bright sunshine. They did admit they partied hard and all through the night, but it was wonderful to see them so happy and celebrating their unique success. Many of them clearly still pinching themselves. We've partied more than we actually played football in the past 24 hours. <laughs> um, but yeah, obviously incredible and to be able to share it with everybody that came to the game and around the country, uh, we're very grateful for everyone's support, yeah. They're very, very good football players. They're very, very good people. Yes. Um, the willingness, the commitment, the resilience, um, the behavior towards each other, the support has been so incredible and most of all, the willingness to want to win so badly. And they won! <laughs> there were people here from all over the country, young and old, boys and girls, some kids who are already out of school for the summer holidays, enjoying the fact they were free to come here and cheer on their new heroes. One day you'd like to play for England? Who's your favourite player? Um, probably the goalkeeper after the tournament. She's been brilliant. So, so yeah, we've been, had a really good weekend. So she plays herself, so it's nice to actually get her up and see what, what they can achieve if they put their mind to it. I think it's amazing getting behind the women's game. I think they should get a bit more exposure and, you know, they should have better access to the game, you know, because there's, there's not much opportunity to go and watch a women's game. Um, how far have you travelled down? Four hours. And you've been watching the whole tournament? Yes. Non-stop? Yes. If anyone deserves a break now, it's certainly the England women's football team and their coach, Serena Wiegmann. It's clear that she's made a huge difference to the perception of what English women's football can achieve and what this particular group of players can go on to do. There's a Women's World Cup coming up next, and that's sure to be their next big target. Alex Thomas, CNN, Trafalgar Square. So much jubilation. The first time there in 56 years history has been made. All right. Let's take one last look at the markets. U.S. stocks remain mostly lower in early trading. We are well off session lows uh, with the Nasdaq turning positive in just the past few minutes. The Nasdaq last week rallying almost 5 percent and cutting its 2022 losses to 21 percent. Energy, the big drag on stocks in early trading, followed by financials. Boeing, a big winner in early trading on reports that it has been given the OK to begin delivering the 787 Dreamliners again. All right, that is it for the show. Thank you so much. Connect the World is up next. You're watching CNN. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.